I don't know because like I've seen the breakdown of how many seconds she's on the screen and it's like 30 seconds of the game. You should be angry about uh, gambling advertising. Yes. And just the sheer number of commercials on American television. Yeah. It makes it very hard to watch. I watch it in a roundabout way that doesn't have commercials in it because you can't watch. No, it's just constant commercials. But everyone's angry. Like, oh, Taylor Swift likes football. So we're angry about it. Yeah. I don't get why you'd be angry for more people having an interest in something you like. So there's a lot of like dads on TikTok who are like, this is the first time my daughters want to sit and watch an NFL game with me. Yeah. And it's great. And yeah, you get so to like spend quality time with my girls. If you're out there angry that Taylor Swift fans are liking football, first of all, you're a dummy. Yeah. And second of all, most sports fans, like if you actually talk to them, they don't know shit about what they think they know so much about. A it's lot of them true. do. But your average fan who goes and is like, yay, Super Bowl time, they can't t- break down any defensive schemes for you. So don't say like, oh, you need to be a real fan because clearly you don't. No. And I got to have a 20-minute conversation with my wife where she listened to me break down my top five tight ends <laughs> of all time. Yeah. And she listened to me do that and was interested, mostly because of Taylor Swift. Mm-hmm. And that is awesome. And Travis Kelsey, because now I know yeah. what a tight end does. My exactly. question was, and you'd say, what does he actually do? Because and I know I he's put him as a top three all time. Yeah. So if you if you care out there, I go Gronk. Uh-huh. I go Tony Gonzalez. Uh-huh. I go Kelsey and then Antonio Gates. Those okay. are my top four tight ends. Good really, you can mix those four up in any order and I'll be <laughs> I'll be happy, but that's where I'd put it. I think a lot of people are putting Kelsey at the top now. Um, not because he's popular because with the Taylor Swift, because he's the best receiver of the four. Right. And that's flashier than and he's a lot of what uh, Tony Gonzalez was doing. I feel like a lot of people put like whoever's the most current at the top. True. There's a recency Because bias. you don't see... Well, even me, I, I'm not going play. any further back than the late 90s because I, I don't know. Back yeah, then, like I exactly. could go like, yeah, Shannon Sharp is probably in there, but I, I can't tell you anything about Kellen Winslow. Yeah. That was before my time. Yeah, exactly. And who would have thought that right wing politicians would be like, oh, a country superstar and a white football player <laughs> are together and we're angry about yeah. it? Like this, this is kind of like your, your thing. poster children for yeah. American whiteness. Well, uh, <laughs> going from two of the whitest people around, let's now go to our episode, which is going to be our first Black History Month episode of the year. Yay! Uh, welcome, everyone, to another episode of I Love This, You Should Too. My name is Indy Tight End Randawa. Although I, I don't think I'd be a good too, tight end. I'm too skinny. You could be a good kicker. What? Or a quarterback. I've never been more insulted <laughs> by anything you've smaller, said. Because they're smaller, right? I, I was a cornerback or a safety. I don't know what those are. So I know a like kicker. four. A kicker? Come on. Like I, I got some. You're love. muscular. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Wow. I'm sorry for insulting you. I only know like three positions in football, so. You know what? I'm so insulted that now you are just Samantha Randawa. You don't even get a fun nickname because I was so thrown off by being I'm called a sorry. kicker. sorry. You're a kicker. I am probably a kicker. Yeah, you might yeah. be. 
<laughs> Sorry. Uh, but we are going to bring you two spoiler-free things of the fortnight, and I'll let you know what we're doing for our big watch next week. And it is, when this comes out, Black History Month. Mm -hmm. And when this comes out, it will be after the Super Bowl, but we recorded this before. Yes. So just in case, um, I don't, don't know, know, a sniper was at the Snooper Super Bowl and took out Kelsey and Swift and we're not addressing it. Yeah, we don't why. know yet. <laughs> This is future. Indeed. Oh, do you have a pick who's going to win? Because this oh, will come yeah. out the day after the Super Bowl. Um, I did see a really funny um, thing on Facebook of because um, they're both red teams. Yes. So they're like, it's basically versus like red versus red taylor's version so i'm gonna have to go red taylor's version uh, you know what the chiefs whatever they do in the regular season they're they're dangerous in the playoffs yeah they always are their defense is better than in the past mm -hmm. the receivers have finally start stopped dropping passes <laughs> Uh, you know what? Who I'm going for? I just want everyone to have a good time. Aw, nice. And some good snacks. <laughs> and because my dolphins are gone. And both of these teams, like, honestly, I don't mind the 49ers. And if the Chiefs win, it's just kind of maintaining the status quo. Like, yeah. the Chiefs win a lot in the last six years. That's yeah. what they do. Yeah. But this is not a football podcast. <laughs> no. We're going to talk probably movies. We're going to talk books a little bit. And uh, whatever you got. I don't even know what your thing is yet. It's a thing. All right. Of the Fortnite. Hmm. And it has to do with Black History Month. Great. Yep. <laughs> so, Indy, because you, we are switching things up at the beginning of season five, um, you will be taking this week's big watch for next week. So uh, why don't you start us off with your thing of the week? All right. My thing of the week, it might be a long one. I'll probably try to get through it real fast, but we'll <laughs> see. But my thing of the week is novels of the Harlem Renaissance. Oh, nobody is surprised. <laughs> I've been reading books, novels written in and around the Harlem Renaissance. So okay. first off, uh, the Harlem Renaissance was a cultural and artistic movement that took place in the 1920s, centered around the Harlem neighborhood of New York City's. And this was a very influential time period for African-American history and uh, cultural history specifically. And this was kind of considered the first major cultural movement by black artists in the United States. Hmm. So during this time, artists like writers, musicians, and just general intellectuals created a, a remarkable body of work that really started to celebrate heritage and identity and the Black experience of the time. And there's, of course, like poets like Langston Hughes. You have your intellectuals like W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, Alan Locke. But I kind of only got into the novels because it's a very big thing. Mm -hmm. I read some Langston Hughes, who's uh, primarily a poet, and he's probably the most famous person to come out of this time, as far as writers go. A lot of great sculptors and painters as well, but that's not something I can convey on the podcast nearly as well. So we'll talk about some novelists. And I kind of used a book I read first as my guide through this, and that was a book called On the Shoulders of Giants by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, oh. who I put as a top three all-time basketball player. I know his name. There you go. He's um, a really just a fantastic guy in a lot of ways. Yeah. He's a prolific writer, if you didn't know that about him, and also uh, the second leading scorer all-time in the NBA. Huh. But this book was kind of a personal 
journey of his when he first learned about the Harlem Renaissance because he was someone, a, a black man growing up in the United States and didn't hear about this until much later in his life as a as a teenager. And then he went back and used basketball as his way in in a lot of ways because it has a lot about the Harlem Wrens and the Globetrotters and how basketball was a part of this movement and coming up in the 20s in New York, how important basketball was. And then that was his gateway, learning from basketball history to black history. And he talked about some of his favorite artists of that and people like Marcus Garvey, who I actually just read a biography of as well. And how all of this kind of culminated in the Harlem Renaissance. So some of my favorite novels then, Native Son by Richard Wright is one of my favorite novels of all time. I think it's one of maybe the five best books ever written. I think it is fantastic. It's one that I'd actually read before and is probably outside of the Harlem Renaissance because it was published in 1940, but it is fantastic. And I think I'm going to talk the least about <laughs> this one because it's so great that I can't encapsulate yeah. all of that in a little speech here, but it is such a nuanced take it had it really dives into the psychology of this man there's a man named bigger thomas he kills someone he's a black man he kills a white woman and it's not extremes on either end it is so much about those gray areas that i talk about how i love art exploring it's about crime and punishment it's about uh, the nature of existence at some <laughs> points. It's about the class struggles. It's about racial injustice. It's about so much, but I can't begin to talk about all of that. So this is my one. If you're going to read any book from the ones I'm going to suggest now, read Native Son. Richard Wright is a genius. There's been, I think, three movies made of it. Oh, None wow. of them great, but this novel is fantastic. Make sure you find the unabridged one because a lot of novels of this time came out in multiple different versions. I don't think the unabridged one drags at all. There are speeches that last uh, four entire chapters, but oh. you know what? I love them. So wow. uh, go check out Native Son by Richard Wright. Uh, an interesting kind of forgotten one that I read was Barracoon, The Story of the Last Black Cargo by Zora Neale Hurston. And if you're familiar with literature, you're probably familiar with Zora Neale Hurston. She is a literary giant in so many ways. And then unfortunately, because she was a black woman writing at the time she was writing at, uh, kind of died in obscurity and was just doing like menial jobs by that point. But her, her legacy lives on through her work. And this is something that was published way after her death, just in 2018, but she was writing in the 20s. And this was her series of interviews and what she learned from this man who named uh, Kajo Lewis, who was one of the last slaves. Oh. So she is talking to someone who was talking about growing up in Africa and then was brought over on the slave ships and then lived through slavery and then emancipation. And it's just such a unique and human look at something that we just talk about so vaguely of like, yeah, slavery. Yeah. But you don't talk to slaves. No. I don't know stories of individual slaves yeah, very often. Yeah, you don't get to hear that kind of... You get like Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad. The you don't, big ones, yeah. You don't hear about something like this. So this was a real eye-opening document. It's a really important 
historical document. Mm -hmm. But Zora Neale Hurston also wrote Their Eyes Were Watching God, which is also one of the most famous novels of the time. This is from 1937. And in reading about the Harlem Renaissance as a whole, just like with all cultural movements, there is a lot of debate on what is actually a part of it. And a lot of people would say like, oh, she's not a part of it. She was concerned mostly with feminist issues, not with the black issues. And not realizing that this is, of course, all, it's all together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is a very important feminist novel in that sense as well. It's about identity and self-discovery. It's about race and gender. It's about one woman's journey. And of course, it is going to take on a lot of the feminist issues as well mm -hmm. as the black issues. But of course, that's her life. Yeah. And it's maybe maybe the most famous novel of this time. And uh, as far as its significance, this is one that I studied in university before mm -hmm. revisiting it recently. And it holds up. It is a uh, really important, again, historical document, but it was something that was really counter-narrative to a lot of prevailing stereotypes at the time. And really captures a gone vernacular language that we don't hear anymore. So they are important not in just what they were saying, but they're just l documents of a time largely forgotten. So it was a great novel. One that I hadn't heard as much before but really enjoyed was a novel called Passing by Nella Larson from 1929. So this is another one that was written by a woman. And in my brief knowledge of the Harlem Renaissance before, a lot of the times, like with most things, the book, the contributions of women are largely downplayed. But this was a good one. And it's about the idea of of passing and passing meaning people who are of African descent passing as white and we get to see the lives of two people both who are black but one who is passing and how their lives differ and it's always a really unique thing when you can be someone who is of one culture who is mistaken as another because you are privy to things that other people are not and of course there are there are a lot of upsides to that but then you get to see the the true nature of a lot of things that you probably wouldn't otherwise and maybe you wouldn't want to know about that's really interesting because that's something that i've always done Yes. As an indigenous person. Because you look. Because I look white. Yeah. And I have a lot of really white features. And um, there's been a lot of moments in my adult life more because I was more aware of it where like passing for white really worked out for me. Mm -hmm. And um, I've had to deal with a lot of feelings of like guilt because I know people who don't look as white as I do have it a lot harder and a lot different than I've had it throughout my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this also gets into within the black community, the feelings for someone who is passing, who is living an easier life because of that. Yeah. And this was a really quick read. I think it got turned into a Netflix movie in the last couple of years oh. with some good names in it. I never watched that though, but I probably should. <laughs> Then one of the other big novels of the movement was, again, this is kind of children of the Harlem Renaissance because Ralph Ellison was writing in the 50s and his novel Invisible Man is very well known, very well regarded. It is a really visceral novel about racial identity, about invisibility within a society, being someone who can... Uh, just disappear because of how you look you are 
regarded or not regarded in this case is in a certain way. And it gets into um, societal expectations, stereotypes, all of that sort of stuff. I think it's really enduring because of Ellison's like narrative techniques and his use of symbolism and his blending of realism of this kind of what we often call as like Kafka-esque paranoia, uh, surrealism, all of that creating this this mindset of this character who you feel like you are trapped in the journey with, and it is not often a pleasant journey. So that was a really good one too. I also read his other book, uh, Juneteenth, and this one was discovered in 1999 and posthumously published. And there's two versions of it. There's Juneteenth, which is 400 pages, which I read. And there's also a version called Three Days Before the Shooting, which is 1,100 pages. And I did not feel like tackling that <laughs> That's one. That's a lot The 400 pages. pages of Juneteenth, honestly, was was too long. This is, um, it's not his best work. Uh, go read Invisible Man before Juneteenth, okay. I would say. Another short and very interesting one was called Black No More by George Scheuler. Uh, the full title is often Black No More, being an account of the strange and wonderful workings of science in the land of the free, A.D. 1933 to 1940. Uh, this was written in 1931, and this is a sci-fi novel, and... 30s black sci-fi was not something that I had a lot of experience with, and this was a great one. It is positing a world where there is a treatment where black people can be turned white. And what is the outcome of that? And it's what you'd think at first of people who are going to go and be white because they're going to be able to live an easier life then. Mm -hmm. But then the clan gets involved and they're like, well, now we really have to test who's really, really white. And it's satirical in so many ways and is shining a light on like how arbitrary the ideas of black and white really are. And it brings that to light. And also the economy starts to crumble when you don't have an entire class of people to exploit. Mm. It makes it a lot harder on your economy. It gets into that sort of stuff. It also has a lot of caricatures and satirical versions of popular like black intellectuals of the time, like Dubois, Marcus Garvey, uh, James Weldon Johnson. It kind of pokes fun at a lot of those people as well. So that's one where I think a lot of the subtlety was lost on me because I... I'm not growing up with those characters, so I don't always get all the little jokes he's making. But that one was a a really quick read and a lot of fun. And it's kind of a precursor to Afrofuturism. So go check that one out. And then we have maybe the greatest known child of the Harlem Renaissance in James Baldwin. So I read a bunch of his books. Uh, Giovanni's Room is very popular. And this one also groundbreaking because he's writing this in 1956 and he has a gay protagonist in it, which was not something done very often. And if you're familiar with James Baldwin, you know he's just just a fantastic writer. He uses symbolism in the cities that this is taking place in. There's a lot of themes of uh, destruction and self-destruction and this search for authenticity. And of course, there's just so much about uh, breaking taboos, but it comes down to a lot of 
human universality almost like yes all of these people are from so many different places but everyone is kind of fundamentally the same right. in a lot of ways he also wrote go tell it on the mountain which i like maybe a little less than giovanni's room but this one uh published in 1953 and it is taking place during the harlem renaissance so this is taking place during harlem in the 1930s which a lot of his works did and it is a lot about religious struggles and how racial identity is uh kind of tied up in that along with the family dynamics mm -hmm. of this group that he is following and themes of self-discovery which is always big in uh in baldwin's work as well and he also wrote If Beale Street Could Talk. And this wasn't published in not until 1974. And there was a good movie based on this that came out within the last six, seven years, which I haven't seen that one either, but I hear very good things about it. Oh, it sounds like we have some movies to watch. <laughs> yeah, but a lot of these books are tough. Right. Like they're not uh, happy, feel-good books, mm -hmm. but I can do that in books a lot more yeah. than in a movie. Sometimes you you want a little more escapism yeah. and uh, these ones seem like they'll be a lot of work. <laughs> like going back to Native Son, which I think is one of the best novels ever written. It's one of the hardest novels to get through. Mm -hmm. It is, you don't feel good reading it. You feel like you've learned things and you feel like you've been on a journey and you just respect the craft of it so much. But it is a tense and uncomfortable book to get through yeah. and makes you feel on edge getting through it. And If Beale Street Could Talk deals with a lot of similar issues because it's largely about uh, racial injustice, about the justice system that is just terribly flawed. It's about institutional oppression and economic struggles. But there is uh, this return to resilience and hope throughout it as well, which Native Son probably has less <laughs> of that. But uh, If Beale Street Could Talk is another great book. And I also, man, I have like four or five more, but maybe let's just end it there because <laughs> I could talk about these books for so long. So go read any of those honestly there's a lot of great stuff i wish i had read more that were actually from the 20s but they're a little tricky to come by now so i started getting into the books in the 30s and 40s and 50s because those are the people who lived and grew up and were shaped by the artistic movement of the harlem renaissance and then i think the as far as novels go the fruit of the Harlem Renaissance perhaps did not ripen until that next generation of <laughs> writers came and wrote based on their experiences of living through that time. Mm -hmm. So go read anything <laughs> from that time. Uh, go learn about the Harlem Renaissance. If you just search it on whatever, Google it and get into some of the visual art of the time as well, because there's lots of good stuff there that mm -hmm. doesn't make sense for me to talk about on a podcast. But Go learn about the Harlem Renaissance. There was a lot of great art. Yeah, sounds amazing. All right, Samantha, what do you have for a Black History Month thing of the fortnight? Yeah, so I, like back in probably 2019 or 2020, it might have been during the pandemic, um, I read Michelle Obama's book, Becoming. Oh, yeah. Um, It came out in 2018. I don't think I read it when it first came out because I think it was like impossible to get get through the library because a it lot was, of holds it was, on that one everybody wanted it so it was something it might have been like a two-year hold 
situation. Oh, and if you are local to us in Edmonton, I think every book I talked about is available through the public library. Perfect. We are big library people. Um, so this book, um, Becoming, is a really interesting kind of retrospective of Michelle Obama's life. And she split it into three sections, Becoming Me, which covers her life growing up in the south side of Chicago um, with her brother and her um, learning kind of how to advocate for herself and how to become kind of independent and also continues through her education at Princeton and Harvard and then becoming a lawyer And then she goes into the second part, which is Becoming Us, which talks about meeting Barack Obama, their relationship, their family, and then the beginning of the political career um, that we all know kind of accumulated with him becoming president and um, her becoming first lady. And then uh, she talks about the balance of becoming the first African-American first lady, um, balancing raising two young children, and also uh, getting all of this attention all of a sudden and how she kind of had to deal with that. And then becoming more um, goes through the presidency as well as um, her becoming the kind of head mom of the United States, as well as um, raising her two daughters in the White House, as well as um, an epilogue, which is included. And uh, it goes from their last day as the first family and kind of what was coming next for them. So I found it really interesting because you kind of get this peek behind the curtain of the presidency, which was really interesting. And and if you know anything about like the Obama's presidency, um, you know that it was pretty polarizing and there was a lot of um, discourse on race and that kind of thing. So I found it really interesting to hear it kind of from the perspective of the people who were being talked about and then also um, just how someone goes from living in Chicago to becoming the first lady of the United States. I found that really interesting as well. So Becoming by Michelle Obama. I wish she would go ahead and become the next president. Yeah, me too. (laughs) I would. That has been a rumor for years. Yeah, of course. Um, We are not Americans, but I can uh, say I would prefer her to all the candidates that I currently know about. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So uh, yeah, check out Becoming by Michelle Obama. Um, I believe that she reads the audiobook as well. So oh, nice. I think I listened to it. So that would make sense. Yeah, that's uh, that's my Black History Month thing of the fortnight. Nice. We got a bunch of books. Yeah, you can just read until next Black History Month. <laughs> <laughs> it did take me a while to yeah. get through a lot of mine. <laughs> So, Indy, what is our big watch for next week? All right. So for our Black History Month big watch, we are going back to 1967 with the very influential and also just fun. Is fun the right word? It is an enjoyable movie. It is not a hard work movie. It is called In the Heat of the Night, starring Sidney Poitier and Rod Steger. And this is a very well-known movie to, well, maybe not so much anymore, because it is from 1967. Have you heard of this movie? I think I've heard of it. You've heard of the title, and a lot of people will know the line of, they call me Mr. Tibbs. Oh, I don't know that line. 
I think they parodied it in uh, The Lion King. Oh, okay. I think Pumbaa does a bit on that, maybe. But it is a uh, great movie. I haven't seen it in... No, I have seen it in the last year, actually. Okay. Maybe about a year ago, I rewatched it. It was on Amazon at the time for rewatching. So go check. Maybe it's still there. Maybe it's still there, yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, man, this was a good movie. I had forgotten about it. And I bring it up for Black History Month, not just because Sidney Poitier was... It's Sidney Poitier, so that's that's a big one. But the production of this movie is remarkable in so many ways. So they wanted to film a lot in in the South. This takes place in the South. Mm -hmm. And Poitier was like, oh, yeah, I don't go to the South. And they're like, why not? He's like, yeah, when I go there, people tend to try to kill me. (laughs) And they had to actually go shoot some stuff there. The movie is explicitly about race relations. Mm -hmm. That is integral to the plot of the movie. But the production also is kind of like a microcosm for that as well. Because simply making a... A movie with a black man who wants to be an equal on screen mm-hmm. and that is the struggle of the plot of the movie but that is also the struggle of the production of such a movie right. because even if you're Sidney Poitier like the most respectable man in the <laughs> world it's a struggle and we'll talk a little bit about that about the making of it It also had this score by Ray Charles and Quincy Jones. So uh, two more very influential black artists. And the the titular song by Ray Charles is very well known Mm -hmm. as well. And we'll talk a little bit about the production because it's remarkable and terrible in a lot of ways. We'll break down a lot of what we see on screen. One little story that maybe I'll tell right now to kind of get you in the mindset of what this movie's about. There is a scene where it's in the South, a white man slaps a black man. Of course, this is 1967 in the South. That is uh, not a crazy thing to happen. And Poitier said, I will do it if I get to slap him back. Oh, And that kind of sets up what this movie is about. I hope people don't go into this. I know there is a lot of... uh, I don't want to just say like, oh, it's just young people. But in more recent years, people feel like if they see a movie with racism in it, that the movie itself is racist. Mm. And I I hope to steer you away from that sort of thinking because this movie is tackling racism head on and it is the most anti-racist movie you could, uh, you can see. But it has racism in yeah. it because it's in the South in 1967. So of course it does because that is a part of that life. I feel like making a movie that took place in this place at that time without racism, that would be a very racist thing to do because you are just saying like, yeah, it was fine. Nothing yeah, ever happened. Yeah, you're just like glossing over And it. it wasn't fine. Things did happen. So this movie is about a police officer Played by Sidney Poitier, who is in the South on uh, to see family, and then gets caught up in a murder case. And the local police are not nearly as good at their jobs as he is, so he is going to begrudgingly help out a little bit. Maybe he is a suspect at times. Maybe he's working against the system at times. Maybe he's working within it. But it's about this big city 
black detective in the small town south and it's a murderer mystery at its heart and it has like a good procedural whodunit core to it and then we get to see the racial politics of the time and how that affects the story right so go watch in the Heat of the Night, starring Sidney Poitier from 1967. I believe there was also a TV show that came after this. Oh. I remember it vaguely because I think it comes from many years later, but we're not going to do anything with that. We're going to watch the movie and we'll talk all about it next week. Perfect. So, Samantha, any thoughts going into this one? Um, No, I am excited to uh, experience this movie. Let's all go experience it. Perfect. So we will be talking about that next week. Go watch it and uh, meet us right back here. And by here, I mean in your ears. In my ears. No, their ears. Oh, your ears. You don't listen to this podcast. I do. When? I've caught up. Really? I haven't listened to like the full back catalog, but I've been listening for the last four months. All right. Samantha is one of our... Top 20 best fans. She's been listening for four months now. Yeah. This podcast has 250 episodes. Yep. <laughs> You've listened to some of them. Some of them. Good job. Thanks. Thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, you're welcome. That's what I'm here for. Listenership. <laughs> all right, everyone. Go listen to all of our episodes and watch In the Heat of the Night. And we'll meet you back next week. Bye, everyone. Goodbye. Goodbye.